By 2030, you roughly have a doubling of the global installed wind capacity. The speed in terms of increase on offshore must be multiple times higher. Could the opportunity for gas and therefore gas turbines be better than the market appreciates? The energy transition is the biggest investment program ever since industrialization. We need to take these decisions now if you want to deliver something by 2030. Welcome to another episode of Good Value by Antipodes. It's Alison Savas, and those highlights were from a discussion between myself and Dr. Christian Brook, the CEO of Siemens Energy. When it comes to green energy, you've probably heard some investors speak about all kinds of hyped up companies. Well, Siemens Energy isn't one of them, but there's still a lot to like about this company. As a global leader in wind turbines, utility scale gas turbines, and grid transmission equipment, Siemens Energy will be a winner in the decarbonisation investment cycle. The scale of investment required to transition to net zero is enormous. And some of the numbers you'll hear in this podcast are so large, it's hard to get your head around them. So the opportunity for Siemens Energy is impressive. For example, Dr. Brook explains that the annual installation of offshore wind turbines needs to increase by seven to eight times to meet 2030 targets. And Siemens Energy has 65% share of the offshore wind market. The annual investment in the grid needs to at least double to reach 750 billion US dollars per year by 2030, as the grid needs to be rebuilt and extended to distribute renewables. And the outlook for the company's gas turbine business is more promising than the market believes, as gas can become the low carbon backbone as intermittent generation ramps up and Siemens Energy's gas turbines can be decarbonised with co-combustion of hydrogen. As Dr Brook explains, it's critical to utilise existing infrastructure in this transition. But reaching these targets isn't a simple task. Engineering doesn't scale as easily as other industries, and we discuss bottlenecks that need to be overcome, like infrastructure, labour and government policy. There also needs to be changes to allow acceptable returns for manufacturers of capital equipment, particularly in the wind industry. So pulling all of this together, Siemens Energy could be poised to deliver meaningful top-line growth and a substantial profit swing over the coming years. I hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome, Dr. Christian Brook. We are delighted to have you on the podcast. First, let's get straight into the big dilemma, which is the pathway to net zero and, or as you recently called it, a trilemma of affordability, reliability and security. Recent events in global equity markets have many questioning if net zero targets are achievable. And as CEO of a company that is a leader in wind, grid transmission equipment and utility scale gas turbines, how do you think about these challenges along that journey to net zero? Yeah, thank you very much, Alison. Thanks for having me on this podcast. Um, it is interconnected. I think this is always what we have to recognize, that uh, affordability, reliability and security of supply only work together. So you have to resolve it uh, consistently among the three different things. And the current developments, if I look, for example, in Europe, has shown us how fast it can swing, right? Because we all of a sudden have seen with the war in Europe mm. actually getting 
affordability and security of supply in the forefront and actually uh, mm. leading to the situation that you had to reactivate cold-fired power plants, which are relatively old. Mm. And uh, at the end also that people were not sure whether they can pay their energy bills uh, through the winter time. And it shows that there is not an easy path through this and that you have to balance out. Uh, that is, by the way, one reason why we believe as an energy technology company, we need to be relatively broad in the different technologies what we offer um, to make sure that depending where you are on this journey, you can pick a little bit a different tool set on what you're going to mm. apply and how it's going to look like. And at the end, it means also for us, there's not one silver bullet saying, hey, we do everything renewables and off we go. It's a little bit more complex to this. And I think in this journey, we have to recognize the time element. And sometimes we discuss so much about the future state, saying mm -hmm. this is where we would want to be. But while moving through this journey, you have to see that certain changes will take uh, a different amount of time. Some things will take a decade, others mm -hmm. you can do within a year. And you have to balance these things out. And this is why uh, playing on these different fields is so important and having a toolbox which is big enough is so important. And it could be sometimes driving efficiency. It could be sometimes building faster out renewables. It could be sometimes strengthening the, the grid. And it could be sometimes uh, really just making sure that you invest for some time in a bridge like gas, which we mm -hmm. are strongly uh, have a strong conviction that this is the case. At the end, uh, there's one measure for me which we should take on our list, which is what is the CO2 emissions we generate in the system? And that is the one indicator which continuously, step after step, has to go down mm. um, in the different solutions, uh, what we're doing, and obviously still making sure that energy remains reliable and affordable for the mm. people. Um, but it means there is a complexity where different type of solutions are required at a different point in time. Mm. So you've raised a number of topics which I really want to delve into into greater detail during during this podcast, but I'd like to shift our focus to your company. A major part of Siemens Energy's business is wind energy. Siemens Gamesa is a global leader in the supply of wind turbines, particularly offshore. Many parts of the world, including Europe and Australia, wind energy has grown exponentially. But how do you see the total installed wind capacity increasing over the coming decade or so? And what are the specific growth opportunities for Siemens Gamesa? Yeah, I mean, first of all, there is no um, sustainable energy system without wind. Mm. You will need wind and you will uh, having grown wind fast. I mean, at the moment, if you take the different studies, you have to assume that uh, by 2030, you roughly have a doubling of the global installed wind capacity. That said, we also have to be aware that today's installed wind capacity is largely uh, onshore wind. Mm. So the speed in terms of increase on offshore must be multiple times higher. So we're talking about uh, seven or eight times the annual installation in 2030 compared towards today. Mm. And this would bring us roughly globally in 2030 to 2,000 gigawatts. And, and if you obviously see that a big uh, nuclear station or a big coal-fired power station has roughly one gigawatt, it's, it's talking about 2,000 really mega-scale type of power plants in comparison to that. So it's massive what you have to build out. And in this regard, obviously, it's a massive opportunity for us. We are playing in both, both fields, onshore and offshore. 
We are with roughly 65% of the global installations in offshore, the market leader in offshore, and obviously we put a high focus on how can we grow mm. in offshore and make sure that these things can be done. By talking about these numbers, one thing you have also to see, uh, today an average type of offshore project, um, if you start it today, will take five or six years until this is finally installed somewhere. Mm. So you, you do see that you have a really big crunch in terms of projects to be delivered by the end of the decade, where mm. you have to have the harbor infrastructures, the, the vessels who bring out the equipment, the factories on our side, uh, the people who build it afterwards. So that is a massive challenge, and it's a massive opportunity. Um, so I have, um, I'm very relaxed on the top-line growth of the wind <laughs> business. Um, uh, the point will be, can we make it profitable, and can mm. we make it predictable? And uh, you know, this is uh, an industry which at the end physically needs to build something in a difficult environment, in, a, in the open sea, for example. Mm. Um, and that is something which uh, should not be underestimated, that you need to build up all these capabilities. We talk about this scaling so easily, four times, eight times or whatever, yes. because we have been, the high growth businesses very often had been digital in the past. Right. Yes. Um, but that is plant engineering. It doesn't scale in the same way. And this is what we have to resolve now. How can we execute successfully? The demand will be massive, I simply really have to say. And uh, in that regard, I'm very comfortable on the top line. The point is, how do we get an implementation infrastructure set up, which allows us predictably to execute this project? And we feel very well positioned for this. Um, but at the same time, obviously, the, our key focus is to make Siemens Gamesa profitable. Mm -hmm. You've touched on something which, which we, I certainly wanted to spend a bit more time on, and that is the bottlenecks. So, yes, that outlook for wind deployment is uh, particularly offshore is very favourable. You know, those numbers you called out, um, you know, seven to eight times annual installations is, is enormous. Um, now, you've already raised one bottleneck, and that is how do we scale? Um, you know, so the question is, I guess, is the supply chain, you know, adequate to deliver on those growth targets? Or um, how do you think that bottleneck can be overcome? I think we have this not only in wind, we will have it in all fields that we need to think about the supply chain. Can you design mm. supply chains according to that to meet this? Absolutely, yes, you can, right? I mean, there is not a fundamental natural law saying you cannot do that. I mean, this is, I would not see. But it means you need to have unprecedented investments also into um, manufacturing and uh, deployment infrastructure. And as I said, I mean, uh, it's not just our factories. Mm. Uh, it's also harbors. Uh, it's also vessels uh, mm. which need to install. And we need to take these decisions now in the next 12 to 18 months if you want to deliver something by 2030. And, and this is what has to be seen. And it's not just us investing. It's also other companies who are active, for example, in offshore um, to invest this. So I think it is possible, but it also means we need to get our act together. And this is why I think it's also so important in the current discussion that we get a predictability into this market. So far, we're talking about big pledges, uh, high mm. ambitions or whatever. Mm. But we have to make sure that every year, whatever, four gigawatt come or five gigawatt come and not potentially 10 years down the road, 40 gigawatts come. You have to cut the elephant into pieces to make it digestible. <laughs> that people 
private money can say it's a good business case to invest into. I know I have recurring business over the next decade to come and I can plan for it. And this will require governments in terms mm. of approval procedures. This will require everybody who's launching auctions to make it very predictable for the really next years to come to allow for these pre-investments into the infrastructure. And this is an absolute necessity to get this straightened out in the next 12 months. I love that turn of phrase, cut the elephant into pieces. I think that's fantastic. Now, policy is key too, isn't it? And I think there are bottlenecks that need to be resolved. Targets are essential, but a policy framework needs to exist to deliver on these targets. Can you take us through what you're seeing? Well, I think, first of all, um, the good thing is, compared to two years ago, it's on everybody's agenda on the top of the list. So if you talk to the US or if you talk to Europe or if you talk to Australia or if you talk to, to Asia, everybody has understood that the current sequence in terms of um, uh, approving a project, getting the permits, building it is too long until 2030. So everybody has recognized the problem. Uh, that is a good thing uh, at this point in time. Um, however, obviously, um, the, um, the measures are not in place yet to change that system substantially. And it will mean you change systems you are used to. You change um, in democracies uh, ways on how to approve certain elements of public interest, like an offshore wind park. People will see something on the horizon, which they may or may not like, right? Mm. And these are mechanisms which you have to change in the society. Um, I recognize the willingness. What I have not seen yet, and I think what has to come, is really a fundamental change in the system which allows to substantially accelerate the decision-making process. And mm. this will be key. How can we make sure that within a year you have an approval to start putting something in the ground after you have applied for it, right? And and this is something what you need to achieve and where you have to change laws, where you mm. have to change legal systems to make this happen. Also afterwards to allow private capital to invest all in all the supply chain, what you mentioned, right? You have to invest into supply chain. If you don't mm. invest, we will be constrained. So we have to do something for it. But we're only going to invest if we can have a predictable model when these projects finally going to come. You cannot bet on something simply. Mm. And in this regard, uh, I see it's high on the agenda. I see there's a high willingness to change it. I still see the challenge ahead of us of running a democratic process on how to change the legal framework in which we're acting. Is the policy framework in the US more favourable with the Inflation Reduction Act? And how do you take advantage of growth outside of Europe? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I mean, I'll come to this in a second, whether Europe is ahead or behind, because mm. I think we also should, I mean, I think the IRA has been a, an, an excellent framed um, concept in terms of really incentivizing private investments. That's mm -hmm. good. And we're going to benefit from it. Um, you may have seen that we are uh, announced that we potentially invest a new offshore factory in the US, relatively substantial investment. Uh, to make use of the opportunity. By the way, uh, it's probably not just wind. It will probably also relate to other type of technologies which are relevant for the energy transition. And this is what the IRA triggers, and that's very positive, and it's a growth opportunity for us in the North American market. Well, we have a very competitive product in offshore. At the same time, uh, if you 
Take IRA as a framework and compare it to Europe. We shouldn't forget that most of the running programs or existing programs are equally sized or bigger in terms of um, incentives which are out. The question in Europe is not the size of the program. The question is how easy it is to deploy it, the money, mm -hmm. and how easy it is to understand in terms of the framework. And you have maybe seen that uh, the European Union launched a green industrial plan or the Industrial Act, mm -hmm. which is about to be substantiated now. And uh, I do have a lot of expectation that this will bring a lot in terms of acceleration into the clean tech industry in Europe and how this can be supported. I do see these plans not competing. I see these plans uh, complementary because you will probably need infrastructure and factories and capabilities in both regions of the world, simply because the need for growth is so massive. Mm. Um, and what I'm seeing coming together is a plan which will minimum equally be sized, if not bigger, uh, in, in Europe and which very much focuses also on building out the clean tech industry. What you have to see is obviously, uh, if you take wind as a, as a good example, where Europe has a big benefit, Europe has an existing wind industry. It has its challenges, particularly with the OEMs, because they're not earning the money they need. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I would say two very strong or a couple of very strong wind companies are residing in Europe. And that is a good base to build on, right? And uh, with, with lots of factories across Europe, and this is what the European Union does want, and this is what I hear from the Commission if I talk to them. And I think we will see over the next weeks and months more clarity around the Industrial Green Act, which will incentivize um, definitely um, build out of renewables substantially, bigger than anything we have seen before. Um, and hopefully also making sure that we get it in the same mechanism like the IRA, that we more talk about the incentivization rather than the stick, mm. right? And, and I think this was one, is one thing we convey to Europe always. Hey, make sure you create a movement. There's enough private capital waiting to get invested. Mm. So design your program that it can be easily understood and, and really motivates uh, private investment. But this would be my expectation in the next weeks to come. And you know the next uh, deadline is in mid-March, um, uh, that this plan will be um, different from anything else what we have seen. Let's talk about the profitability of wind projects. Our team has done a lot of analysis on this. We know that the profitability of wind businesses across the industry has been challenged. You faced higher costs from COVID supply chain issues. More recently, it's been about inflation and also competitively bid contract prices. Are you seeing evidence of these pressures abating? My answer would be yes, and uh, there's a couple of indicators. The one thing is if you look on the average selling price, which gets published um, by all the um, big wind OEMs, uh, which is relating to onshore mm. market, it, you, sh you see the increase, which obviously shows that you're able to get a pricing scheme through. The other thing is where I have the evidence is terms and conditions and the contracts mm. are changing towards the customers and particular on offshore where you have a smaller customer group and obviously more experienced players in. It's a completely different discussion what you have today compared to like 24 months ago. Mm. And in that regard, um, it helps that none of the big wind OEMs is earning money because everybody mm. has the same problem to resolve. right? And this gives me the 
the confidence that uh, the industry can fix their problems to some extent. The risk and reward profile for the OEMs in the wind has not been intact. And it cannot be that obviously you have um, extra high profits in the operator's side where you have the OEMs dying in terms yeah. of their ability to earn money. And I think if I talk to customers, um, uh, they're all in fierce agreement. The challenge now is how do we make sure that end-to-end, -end, so from the, uh, from the power purchase agreement what our customers sign, down to us as a supplier who afterwards built the facilities, it is an intact business model. So it means if we want to have inflation protection or certain mm. risk protection, it must be visible afterwards also in the in the PPA what our customers are signing up to in terms of what are the power pricings they're delivering. So the auction design is something which will have to be changed going forward to reflect these type of different risks and, and uh, what is supply chain what are supply chains doing and how can we allocate the risk. The other element what you have to see and I think um, we hear it uh, loud and clear in the industry is the innovation speed. This industry has seen a crazy innovation speed over the past decade, where you had every two years a bigger turbine. Mm -hmm. And we have to get more into where other um, engineering industries are to more um, stabilize the product life cycle, which means longer product life cycles, to get experiences with the product before you move to the next one. This was a red race, uh, which is non-sustainable. Mm. And uh, you also have to see that on an LCOE basis, the prices came down substantially in the past 10 years, right? Depending on the area, around 70%. No other engineering technology type of industry had such developments in the last 10 years. Mm. And, and that is something, obviously, um, where we have to be clear and honest to say that speed is too high. Mm. And uh, we will need to obviously um, uh, make the um, uh, product life cycles longer to get experience with the products, to get the non-conformity cost down. If I listen to my peers uh, in their analyst calls, I hear the same things, what I would say. So I think, yes, I do see um, the industry maturing in the sense of how do you run sustainably a profitable business which is needed for the long run. And uh, one big change compared to two years ago is also there's no question anymore that you are heavily dependent as a world on offshore and onshore wind. I would say two years ago this was not as crystal clear, right, because... Um, you had much more mixture, it didn't look as... Now you see it's really critical to build it, right? And in that regard, I do believe we will see changes in the industry bounty conditions going forward. Mm. Can you give us a sense of how order prices um, have been increasing, average selling price increases? Yeah, if you look on the ASP price, which has been obviously published over the uh, last quarters, I would you, if you would look back to the... Last year, you're now back on roughly the 2015, 2016 type of price level in the average selling price um, uh, um, of, of the turbines. It's not easy to compare it like to like, but over a year, you would, would compare it to price increases of roughly roughly 30%. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's a little bit, it depends a little bit on the scope because it's an average type of indicator. So it's not super exact, mm -hmm. but it shows you that it was substantial increases um, in the market, uh, which 
is also needed to digest inflation elements. Mm -hmm. And with costs um, rolling over as well and those ASP increases, how do you see the profitability of Siemens Gamesa evolving over the coming years? Yeah, for us, obviously, is uh, first of all now the target to stabilize the company. We have a relatively detailed plan out, which we need to put out into the open public market because of the uh, transaction to buy out the minorities. Uh, and it shows, obviously, the turnaround going forward over the next years, which will gradually, uh, first of all, bring it to zero and then obviously make it profitable in the midterm target still with the above 8%. Mm -hmm. uh, we haven't stated out a year on this midterm now exactly after the latest uh, developments. <coughs> but for me, obviously, as Siemens Energy, uh, first and foremost is to get to the to the black zero, which I obviously in terms of turnaround um, uh, in the current plan you you see it as per per next year, um, which is lying out in the in the public, and I I do believe obviously in this plan of Siemens Gamesa of gradually picking it up. What you have to be aware in the wind business, like in every plant engineering business. You have to work off your backlog first. And obviously yes. some of the backlog is still onerous. I think Siemens Camesa has been explicit about that, um, yeah. what you have to work off. Uh, most of that is in, in, in onshore, uh, which has shorter times, which is good, right? But um, uh, this is what you have to do. So despite the fact that we already since quite some time introducing better terms and new contracts, it will take some time in the mixed effect to get it through the revenue completely. But what I expect going forward over the years to come is year after year after year, a continuous improvement on the profit mm. line. And that is my key thing. It's not so much... Um, to, uh, let's say, when to get to this full um, uh, expected profitability, but it's this mm. continuous year after year uh, increasing. Mm -hmm. How, do you think an increase in competitive intensity in the industry could challenge those targets? You know, I'm just thinking that while the Western and Chinese wind markets have historically been very separate, you know, presumably Chinese OEMs would like to expand their share of international markets. Yeah, I, I, first of all, I have to great respect for our Chinese competitors, but there's a couple of things one needs to see. First of all, half of the wind market is and will be uh, China, right? Which also means uh, they will face an equally challenge in terms of how to cope with this increase. And the Chinese wind market is going to be supplied by Chinese players. We are not going into that. Mm. And that is not an easy piece, right? Um, this is one thing to be seen. Mm. Um, the second piece is it's a... Um, it's a plant engineering business to some extent. It's not PV, right? It's not easy where you can produce a module and then simply ship it out. Yes. Um, it still requires a lot of local work. It still requires uh, certain execution elements. And I think other industries have shown um, that you can create a sustainable living with Chinese competitors in, in these type of markets still. Because not every company is com uh, able to compete everywhere. And I think in today's geopolitics, it's even more type of challenge and discussed. So I would absolutely take the competition serious out of China, but I'm not afraid of it. And I don't see the target underlying changing because of that. I mean, that is not my expectation. Um, I think there's enough in the industry in terms of self-help, in terms of fixing basic mm -hmm. principles uh, that you can run a profitable business in that. 
Okay, I want to shift our focus to another major part of Siemens Energy, and that's the gas and power division. So we know that gas is an important stepping stone to net zero, but could the opportunity for gas and gas turbines be better than the market appreciates? You know, when it comes to renewables, the sun doesn't always shine or the wind blow when you need it. So how do you think about a need for backup power alongside battery storage, which certainly in the near term could have challenges around scale? Yeah, uh, we're, I'm strongly convinced, obviously, that we always said it since the start of the company, you will need gas for quite some time and, and at whatever size. If I compare 2020 to today and look on the market, we always have been very conservative and planning the uh, this business line going forward. Uh, if I look on today's market, it definitely, definitely until 2030, looks substantially better than we anticipated in 2020. Mm-hmm. So there is an upside. However, I always clearly say for me, profitability comes first, right? I mean, we um, will still, we serve what we can. We are actually have order books full uh, on the gas side and we'll continue uh, also, let's say, in, in the first quarter of 2023 looks extremely positive on the gas side and it seems to prevail really until 2030, which was not our assumption when we designed the business case, which means at the end we have a longer time to put new units out in the market as one of the uh, production backbone in case the wind is not blowing or the sun is not shining. Mm. At the end, our model was always, uh, keep, uh, keep this in mind, to gradually turn it more and more and more and more to a service, pure service-driven business. It's around 60% service today, right? And so it's a very resilient, very planable type of business. And it was always the intention to continue to grow that. What we have now as an ability is to have a little bit longer runtime in terms of bringing new units in the market, which afterwards will be serviced, mm-hmm. and which afterwards will be decarbonized by, for example, having co-combustion of hydrogen or having other measures in terms of using them as backup backbone. Mm-hmm. And the logic also is how can we reuse existing infrastructure like gas 10 years down the road to stabilize the grid or the energy supply. We have to be aware the energy transition is the biggest investment program ever since industrialization. Mm. So we will have to be thoughtful also about the amount of money what we deploy. So we shouldn't overlook existing infrastructure like gas power plants. How can we make them part of the system? Simply because we will be limited at one point in time in spending capital. Simply because the investment in renewables and grid is so enormous, right? And uh, that is something which easily gets overlooked. And yes, gas plants can play a key role, even if they're only operated for a very limited amount of time and potentially in the future with green hydrogen. Mm. Just to say at this point in time, my cheapest way to produce now that many gigawatts is using existing infrastructure with a renewable molecule like hydrogen. And this is where gas can play a, a big role. And the market is looking more positive than we thought two and a half years ago. However, we will always follow this journey in terms of maximizing our profitability, getting our earnings out of that, and driving it more and more to a service-driven business. Let's talk about the grid. Investment in the grid to manage distributed energy generation and to transport it to where the energy will be consumed is often forgotten in the net zero conversation. Can you give some context to the scale of investment required 
and how Siemens Energy will benefit. Yeah, first of all, I would fiercely agree that the investment in the grid is absolutely underestimated. Mm. And uh, if you take the IRA, IEA numbers, uh, they, they assume an uh, annual investment uh, to reach roughly 750 billion by 2030 every year, right? Mm. This is obviously along all the different levels of distribution what you have we are not playing in each and everything because we are obviously um, mainly on the high voltage side but what you say seeing is massive and it would roughly if you compare it to the past roughly be around a doubling or more of mm -hmm. the annual spent on the grid yeah. and um, at the same time you have to be aware we discuss it at the moment still very often from what has to be added to um, take on all these renewables type of discussion what you have to take into account, at the same time, take US as an example, roughly wants to replace 60% of the electricity grid until 2030 because the current average age, I think, is around 35 years of the equipment in the grid. So it's relatively old. It was completely underinvested over mm. the last decades, right? So you have two things. You have to extend the grid infrastructure and you have to rebuild the existing one. So that is a massive uh, investment, uh, what is coming. We are benefiting, obviously, particular if I see the what we call HVDC connections, so the high-voltage direct current grid connections, which are the connections which, uh, for example, connect the offshore wind to the onshore or yes. which di distribute bigger amounts of electricity for longer distances. And uh, we have seen uh, already last year around uh, totally in this business area around 10 billion of orders. That is not just HVDC, it's also uh, <coughs> transformers. But um, if you see that we generated around 6.4 billion revenue last year, mm -hmm. you see mm -hmm. how fast the order book is growing compared yes. to the revenue. And the question will not be, um, is there enough potential. The question is how many orders are we comfortably taking with the ability to execute it? So the mm -hmm. question will be how fast can we grow? The market for me for the next years to come is really unprecedented and, and offers a huge opportunity that is our, uh, apart from offshore wind, that is our fastest growing business area. Mm -hmm. And as you deliver on your restructuring and margin improvement program over the coming years, is it fair to say that it's the profitability of the capital equipment side of the business which will which will need to change the most? You know, because as you already called out, that service um, that service or aftermarket revenue stream is already very high margin. So, so what is your aspiration for the capital equipment margin, and and over what time frame? You know, what do you need to do to get it from where it is today? to where you would like it to be? Yeah, first of all, uh, you have to see that over the past two and a half years, we already made a substantial progress in terms of obviously driving profitability in the different areas, except wind, right? I mean, mm. wind is obviously our, our uh, element which we need to fix. But if I look obviously on gas services, which is in the meantime, double digit margins, um, if I see uh, transmission or the grid technology side, and also if I see elements like compression or steam, which really have substantially improved over the um, past uh, two and a half years. But you're absolutely right. I think the key lever is on the one side, keeping the service margins intact. And this is a continuously defending and requires also innovation. And the uh, the second element is really driving up the new equipment margins and getting your fair 
um, share for the products you deliver. And that is partly a pricing activity, that is partly, uh, partly a, a cost improvement activity. And you may know that we redesign footprints of factories and where do we do certain things. Um, but absolutely getting the, um, uh, the, the product pricing to the right space will be a key contributor to the margin improvement. And as you said, for everything but wind, we clearly said 2025 is our key um, target date to say we want to be in the target corridor of above 8%. And uh, this looks a little bit different across the different businesses, but this obviously means until then, we have to deliver on this, and I'm absolutely comfortable that we are on the right track to do that. And obviously, we have an excellent environment at the moment with a very high demand for our mm. products to also, um, on the pricing side, to have decent discussions with customers. Gotcha. Final question, Christian. Can you take us through some of the next generation solutions that the team is working on? Yeah, I can try to do this. Obviously, we spend around a billion euros roughly on innovation across the company, across the different technologies. Let me give you one caveat. The, um, I think we always have to be careful as, is to talk about, the, hey, there's the next silver bullet, the next big thing which solves the whole problem. Yes. Innovation in energy is relatively diverse. And obviously, you have to think is on what can you deploy because it is actually a very... Um, risk-averse industry, which does not easily deploy innovations. But there's a couple of elements where we continue to drive our key technologies to more sustainability. One key element, for example, is our complete um, SF6 gas-free um, switch gear, which means you replace a harmful gas, which is 20,000 times more harmful, or 25,000 times more harmful than CO2, by more or less clean air. Mm -hmm. and uh, still make classical um, switchgear um, still also uh, environmentally friendly. Sounds so easy, but it's a lot of innovation. It's, it's a lot of things because these things have to operate. At the same time, uh, obviously, um, one key element for us is and will be hydrogen, right? We invest a lot of money into hydrogen. We are deploying uh, bigger and bigger pilot projects, and we are also trying to demonstrate globally of what else you can then do on the power to X with hydrogen. One example is, is this facility in Chile, where we together with Porsche and Enel and um, AME and Enup uh, produce out of uh, wind triggered green hydrogen, at the end a renewable fuel by a synthesis of methanol, then afterwards to gasoline, and also trying to capture CO2 from the air. So it combines mm. all type of new technologies to bring these things together to demonstrate that at the end, you can transport, you can produce, and then afterwards transport green molecules, which allow to decarbonize hard to abate sectors like mm. mobility or like aviation. Yes. Uh, and that is obviously one of uh, key elements, but there is obviously a lots of different type of innovation what we're doing and a lot of these are, are, are um, I wouldn't want to call them incremental because they are super relevant but these yes. are improvements in efficiency digitization how can you electrify certain things so there's lots to come uh, in terms of driving forward innovation in a, in a complex uh, energy system. Christian thank you for your time today and sharing your insights. Our conversation today highlights it's an exciting time for Siemens Energy. 
we are on a pathway towards net zero. And while there will be challenges along the way and the timing of reaching these targets may not be certain, it's clear Siemens Energy will be part of the solution. No, <clears throat> thank you very much and thank you for the discussion. And I'm absolutely um, uh, convinced of that. And obviously I see what this organization is able to deliver. In the end, <coughs> it's also about you need to be able to implement things. And I think this is what Siemens Energy has been demonstrated in the past. One-sixth one of the global electricity production has been built on our technology, and we want to continue to grow this also in a sustainable world. For any further information on Antipodes, please head to our website, antipodes.com, or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And remember to subscribe to this podcast so you can get an alert when our next episode goes live in a few weeks. Please remember this content is general information only. It is not advice of any kind and doesn't take into account your personal financial situation, objectives or needs. You should seek professional advice before making any financial decisions. Individual stock commentary is illustrative only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any security.